Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you on this day as we sing hallelujah. We pray, come Holy Spirit, come. Come and flood this place and fill our hearts and our minds. Come and fill my words and open the scriptures that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I got to tell you, as I look out at this congregation, it is good to see you here today. Welcome to Church of the Holy Cross. Welcome to all of those who are with us online. It is a good day to worship the Lord, and I thank you for joining us today. Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man to climb to the top of Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. He was once asked, what was it like when you made it to the top, when you reached the peak? And he said that at first he was absolutely ecstatic. The accomplishment overwhelmed him. I did it, was what rang through his heart. I mean, think about it. This man straddled the top of the world with one foot in China and the other in Nepal with the vastness of the world below him. But immediately after, he said, what followed that first feeling was a sense of overwhelming desolation and emptiness. And he wondered... What is there left to do now? He had done what no one else had done. He literally reached the highest place you can reach on the earth. And he discovered that it was empty. The world tells us that we can find our ultimate fulfillment in this life. And our deepest satisfaction will come if we just make it to the top. The world promises that if we obtain certain things, then our lives will matter. The world says that power, wealth, fame, beauty, achievement, success, these are the things that will fill our lives. They will give us security. They will declare our significance. And they will bring us happiness. And many of us, Perhaps even you are putting our hope in these things. But I've observed something from an alarmingly large number of people. When you listen to the words of people who have actually attained the promises that the world says will satisfy in their honesty, those moments of honesty, they often declare that they are devastatingly empty. Take, for instance, George Harrison. George Harrison was a beetle. In an interview with Time magazine, and speaking about the Beatles, he said this. At first, we all thought we wanted the fame. After the initial excitement and the thrill had worn off, I, for one, became depressed. Is this all that we have to look forward to in life? being chased around by a crowd of hooting lunatics from one crappy hotel room to the next? Or how about supermodel-turned-actress Cara Delevingne? In speaking about her world-renowned modeling career, she was sought after for her beauty and paid highly for it. 
She told Entertainment Tonight, it all just made me feel a bit hollow inside. Fashion is about what's on the outside. And that's it. Then there's the tech entrepreneur, Elon Musk. He's one of the only people in the world who has started four separate billion-dollar companies. And yet even with all that, he is devastatingly alone. He told Rolling Stone magazine as he described his life after his divorce to then-ex-wife Justine and his breakup with his actress girlfriend, the 46-year-old, mind you, said this, being in a big empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways, how do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? I could go on and on. There are countless testimonies like this. But let me just offer one more example, something maybe a little closer to home. It comes from psychologist Madeline Levine. She's worked with teenagers for over 25 years. She's been counseling teenagers. And recently she's begun to see a new breed of unhappy teens. She says they're smart, they're successful, and they're privileged kids. They're actually the children of those who are seeking what the world says will satisfy. Levine described a 15-year-old girl, and this is what she said about her. She's bright and personable. She's highly pressured by her adoring, but often preoccupied parents, and she's incredibly angry. As Levine looked at the girl sitting there in her office, she quickly recognized her cutter's disguise. A long-sleeved t-shirt pulled halfway over the hand with a hole cut in for the thumb. T-shirts like that are used to hide self-mutilating behaviors, you know, burning with matches and cutting with razors and other sharp objects. When the young girl pulled back her sleeve, Levine was startled to see that the girl had, ra- had used a razor to cut into her arm the word empty. She literally put the word empty. She carved it into her flesh. And this is what Levine writes. The most common thing I hear in my office from the kids is, I'm a fake. The surface of their family life always looks good. The lawns are perfectly manicured. The houses always look beautiful. But when you get to what's going on beneath these kids' t-shirts, there's not much happening inside. They are empty. It has been said, the world offers promises full of emptiness. But Easter offers emptiness full of promise. And today I want to speak briefly about that Easter emptiness and the promises that God makes within it. Let's start with the empty cross. The empty cross gives us the promise of forgiveness. As those women approached the tomb on that first Easter morning with the blackness of night receding, the first rays of the sun beginning to enlighten the sky... Just a short distance away stood the hill called the Skull. And on that hill, three crosses stood. 
The day before was the Sabbath when no work could be done, and therefore the crosses had not yet been taken down. They stand as a gruesome reminder of what happened on Friday. Can you see them in your mind's eye? The middle one. That's the one upon which Jesus hung. It's not beautiful like the crosses that we process behind in the church or that we hang upon our walls. It's stained dark. It's stained dark with his blood. The blood that flowed freely from his hands, his feet, his head, his side, his back. It's an empty cross now because Jesus died upon it, abandoned, alone, naked, forsaken, ashamed. By all his friends, he was abandoned, and even by his God and Father. And it was his lifeless body, cut up, swollen, mangled, and limp, that was taken down from the cross. He was not mostly dead, he was dead. And it was certified by the Roman centurion who reported it to Pontius Pilate, the governor. On that cross, Jesus breathed his last words, and he said, It is finished. But what was finished? What was it that was finished? Sin as the dominating force and the final word on our lives, and the emptiness of death as the penalty for our sin. When Jesus died on that cross, he did so in our place, as our substitute, in your place, in my place. He paid the cost of our sin. He bore the effects of our sin. He broke the power of our sin. He took the condemnation of our sin. He died the death of our sin. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death for you on the cross, when you believe the gospel, you are legally free from the penalty of the law. No one has any charges against you. Let me say that again because it hasn't sunk in for all of you yet or else your eyes would be smiling and your hearts would be beating. In Christ, you not only get a get-out-of-jail-free card, but now the possibility of jail no longer exists for you. God has nothing on you, nothing against you. He finds no fault in you. He finds nothing for which to punish you. He accepts you. And he sees you as he sees his son. Not based on what you do, but based upon what his son has done. He is totally right, totally righteous, totally honorable before God. And he exchanges that for those who put their faith in him. He gives us his rightness before God. And he takes away from us the sin that would condemn us to the emptiness of death. The Apostle Paul tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And when that sinks in, when that 
actually deeply, fully, and completely takes root in your life, you'll find out that obeying God is not something that you do from fear or out of duty. It flows naturally as an act of love and as a response of gratitude. It's the normal way of being when you know that God is for you and not against you. The theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, When you know this, you'll be less burdened by guilt, unworthiness, and shame, and the drivenness to prove yourself to others and to the world. You'll become less sensitive to criticism, less defensive, more confident in relationships, full of joy and prayer in worship, A song like that one that we just sang and the rest that we'll sing in this service will not merely be words about God, but an overflow of your heart to God out of love and out of gratitude. And you can stop striving to find fulfillment on the world's empty promises. Not too long ago, I received a magazine sweepstakes letter In the mail. It was addressed to me, it had my name all over the thing. It repeatedly promised a million dollar prize. It spoke of instant wealth, a lifetime of leisure. At the bottom of page two, in the very, very small and fine print, I found the part that I was looking for. As required by law, the letter told me that the approximate numerical odds of me winning this were one in 80 million. That's very remote, by the way. But with Christ, because of the empty cross, there is no fine print. There's no empty promise. What he offers is simple and free. Free to us, but but deeply, deeply costly to him. The promise of the empty cross is that we are fully forgiven. We are restored to God. You don't have to fear him anymore. You can live with him now in a new relationship. And that brings us to the promise of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is the proof that the payment for sin was accepted. The empty tomb gives us the hope of heaven. When those women arrived on that morning, they expected to find the tomb exactly as they had last seen it on Friday. Closed shut with a heavy stone over the door and the dead body of Jesus inside. You know this because they brought the spices to finish the burial process. Mark tells us that they worried out loud to one another, who will roll away the stone? Who's going to move it from the entrance of the tomb? But what the text then says is that when they arrived, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Yeah, you think? He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was crucified. He was dead. He was killed. But he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? When Christ rose from the dead, God put an exclamation point on the cross. He said emphatically, emphatically, emphatically and totally that what happened on that Friday was enough. Death has lost its sting. It has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. It's no longer a vast emptiness waiting for you that you have to dread and avoid at all costs. It is no longer something to be feared, for now it is a doorway to his presence. I heard a story about a father and his young son who were driving in the car. The window was slightly opened and a bee somehow got through the cracked window and was suddenly buzzing around in the car. The young son panicked because he was deathly allergic to bee stings. I mean, he was freaking out. His father saw his face, and so he reached out and he caught the bee in his hand. Soon afterward, he opened his hand, and the bee again began buzzing around the car. The boy panicked again. But the father looked at his son and reached out to him with an open palm, And showing him the palm, he saw the stinger embedded in the father's own hand. It's okay, my child. I took the sting. The bee can't hurt you anymore. The empty tomb is God's way of saying to you and to me, My daughter, my son, I took the sting. Death cannot ultimately harm you anymore. I read recently about a man named Knapp Clark in Starksville, Mississippi. He preached at his wife's funeral. They had only been married for six years. They were both young. He knew that she had cancer before he married her. Now, following the service, someone came up to Knapp and said, Gosh, you must be such a great guy to marry a woman you knew had cancer and who might die. And Neff said, no, I'm not a great guy, but I do have a great Savior. Now, why could he say that? And what did Knapp Clark mean by a great Savior? Knapp knew that he would see her again in the presence of the risen King. The empty tomb and Christ's resurrection guaranteed his wife's resurrection. And it is what guarantees your resurrection too. It is what guarantees your resurrection too. It is what guarantees your resurrection and your resurrection and your resurrection and your resurrection too. And because of this, today, we can rejoice You can rejoice. Sin is not the last word on your life. Death is not the last story that you will have. Easter's emptiness and the promises of God within the empty cross and the empty tomb mean you can live freely and you can live fully with your God today. No matter what situation you find yourself in, 
No matter the difficulties, no matter the trials, no matter the challenges, and hear this, please someone hear this, no matter the past that you bear with you. Let me leave you with this. After declaring that Christ was alive, the angel said to the woman, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Now why was Peter singled out? Why was it that Peter was the one who was mentioned? It was because Peter had abandoned Jesus. He denied even knowing Jesus. He called down curses and damnation upon himself if he had even seen Jesus. And Peter was supposed to have been his best friend. This was a word of comfort, and it was a word of assurance to Peter. That even though Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus never denied Peter. God was not focusing on the wrong that Peter had done, but on the remorse that Peter was under. You know remorse, right? It's what you carry heavily within you that sometimes leaks out from your eyes. That you wear masks and shields. I don't mean the kind on your face. I mean the invisible kind to keep the world from seeing. Jesus is always ready to comfort penitent sinners. Friends, there is full acceptance in Christ There is hope. There is a future. The question is, will you believe it? Will you receive it? Will you turn from the emptiness of the world's broken promises and turn to the promises of Christ? And maybe if you look at your life and you recognize that You've forgotten this. Will you come back? Will you rejoice in this? Will you let the gospel define you? And will you go share the good news with others whom you know are deeply lost in the world and deeply in need of the empty tomb, the empty cross, and the offer of God? Let's pray. Oh Jesus, on this most holy day, we don't pray to a man of history alone. We pray to a living and resurrected Lord. We don't say empty words to an empty sky. We seek to speak true words to the true God who truly loves us and who promises to give us new life, forgiveness, and an everlasting place in your presence. And so, Lord, receive the prayers of our hearts this day. Come and fill us and make us new. And give us your resurrection life that we might walk with you from this day forward until the day we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.